Have you ever wondered why we sing, sing, and even have musical worship when we gather on Sunday? Isn't worship supposed to be a whole life thing that you, you know where you give glory to God in everything you do? I have. Another reason of which is because I don't have any musical talent. And when I did try to sing at church, and this was before GFC, uh, my friend next to me, who was one of the worship leaders, you know, complimented my singing. Because I was so off-tune that I was singing in harmony. <laughs> and no, I cannot replicate that on demand. So in my youthful mind, you know, I can understand why we pray, read, and listen to sermons. But why should we sing every week? And yet there I was, standing up, and then the worship leaders tell, uh, told me so, and I would mumble some words, and I would even clap half-heartedly, you know, when those around me did. But over the years in GFC, through the teaching of the church, and serving alongside the worship team in my role as, a, as part of the sound team, and being given the privilege to study the Word and to preach you know, we're singing the psalm series uh, a few years ago. I've come to a different understanding and appreciation to the essential role of singing and music in the church. So in our text today, um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, uh, yes, I will just preach on one verse, but there will be a lot to unpack. So I want to take this opportunity to teach us why musical worship matters in GFC and why it is an essential part of the commission, Great Commission work of a local church. So when we gather to worship on Sunday, our priority is the indwelling of the Word of God by pursuing to teach and admonish one another through songs with a posture of thanksgiving to God. So that will be our three points of the sermon today. Our priority in our musical worship is the indwelling of God's Word to us. And how do we do that? How do we pursue that? By teaching and admonishing one another through songs. And in what manner do we do that? Well, we do so with a posture of thankfulness to God. So first, the priority in our worship is the indwelling of the Word. In Colossians chapter 3, Apostle Paul urges believers in Colossae to live out the new life that they have in Christ by seeking the things above where Jesus is and not on earth. And that means believers must put down earthly characters that are sinful and immoral, but put on the good virtues, virtues that are the marks of God's chosen ones. And of all these markers, love is the first that's pointed out by Paul. And it is under this context we read verse 16. That the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the first, uh, the, uh, first part of the verse we have the commandment that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that is why that is the, it's the priority of our worship. So what does the word of Christ refer to? 
Is it, is it the red letters in some of your Bibles, you know, which are the words that Jesus spoke according to the biblical authors? Uh, I think that would be too narrow and too and insufficient. insufficient. Instead, the word of Christ here refers to words about Christ, or the message that proclaims Christ. It is a gospel message that Colossians churches heard and believed in chapter 1, verse 5 to 6. Because of this hope laid out for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it, the grace of God in truth. The gospel of Jesus is that there is a hope for you and for the whole world, all of which have been corrupted by the sins of Adam and Eve, by you and me. And sin resulted in evil and brokenness into this world, and ultimately death. It robbed us from truly knowing what it means to be human in the image of God, and it prevented us from living out after His likeness. And we're not the only one that are groaning, are groaning and toiling in, this, in sin. The creation, likewise, is not what it was what it was created to be. There wasn't supposed to be a pandemic like this. It wasn't supposed to be dangerous or unwise to see the smile of your friends, to hug them, and to dine with your family. But our ultimate hope is not in our own ability to save ourselves, whether it's physical or spiritual. And that is the good news. Our hope is in, in God, the Son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, who obeyed the will of the Father, and through his death, he paid for the penalty of sin that we owed. And through his resurrection, he restored to us the true humanity of God's image. So the question is, do you believe God has saved you apart from your own efforts? Do you believe that your salvation and happiness does not depend on yourself or anything of this world? We use the word grace a lot in our church. But what does it mean? Grace is blessings and favors freely given to you, unearned, not deserved. The Colossians heard it and understood what a precious gift God's grace is. But do you believe that? Do you want that? Sure, you have heard of this message a thousand times already in the church. So why do we keep repeating it? Because Apostle Paul instructs the Colossian believers to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And therefore, for us, we must ought to do so. The Colossian church did not only need to hear this message once, you know, to believe and then move on. No, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love the verb dwell here. It is so vivid. Uh, in Greek, the word shares the same root as the word house. So the word signifies to live, to have a permanent residence. So the, gospel, the word of Christ, this gospel message, must live in you, like a member of your household. Before I was married, I lived with three single dudes. And if you visit our house back then, 
right away you would know guys live here. <laughs> we have mixed matched uh, second-hand furniture, uh, random decors in the house. My roommate had a rack of spice jars filled with candies for some reason. <laughs> and then I had this poster of God's attributes, you know, nailed on a wall with thumbtacks. I thought that would make me look very pious, but it doesn't. <laughs> but when I got married, you know, Bridget moved in. And the guys moved out. Our house also transformed. We got rid of all the stuff, we bought new furnitures. We renovate our space from inside to the outside, and everything about the house gradually changed to reflect the taste and the lifestyle of our family and the beauty of the one who lives in it. And that's how the Word of God must dwell in us. It's not a, he's not a guest or visitor who comes and goes without leaving any marks. He's not a grown-up child who once lived in among you, but now have moved out. He's not a landlord who owns the house in name, but does not actually live here. No, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The good news of Jesus is not just a superficial or parsing remark we make every Sunday. It's not a routine that we repeat each week out of obligation so that we can boast that we are gospel-centered church. But the good news of Jesus lives in us richly, exceedingly, abundantly, not only in terms of how often we repeat it, but also in depth. We want to dig deep in the gospel so that it may penetrate us deeply. And that must be our priority as we worship. And it is worth noting here, who is the you? Are we talking about you individually as a believer? Or are we talking about you all as a church corporately? And the answer is, as a good brother of mine would say, yes. The preposition in here addresses us both personally as well as corporately as a church. So you can say the word of Christ dwell in us as well as Word of Christ dwell among us. So our priority in the worship is to let what was written about Jesus Christ from 2,000 years ago be proclaimed truthfully, clearly, and boldly here at Grace Fellowship Church, that it may deeply penetrate within us through the work of the Holy Spirit, that enables this message to have the full transformative power in our hearts and in our community. So how do we pursue this priority? In our sermon series so far, we have uh, learned that it starts with preaching of God's word. And we respond in prayer as a language of our faith. And in our text today, the means of pursuing this priority is through teaching and admonishing each other, one another, by the songs we sing. And this is our, my second point today. Our pursuing worship is teaching and admonishing one another through songs. So let's read, uh, read our text here. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So here is, uh, there is a grammatical decisions uh, that the translators of the Bible have to make. 
So in the original text, the Greek text of the New Testament, there are no punctuations. Um, so the question is, does singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs go with teaching and admonishing, or does it go with singing with thankfulness? So in our ESV translations, uh, the editors kind of left the phrase in the middle, uh, ambiguously, so it may seem like it can go either way. But I think uh, I, I think the, the better translation will be from CSD Bible uh, that says, "In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs." And then you got a break. So that's the one idea. And singing to God with gratitude in your heart. That's the second idea. So I believe this translation reflects the structure of the Greek text better, and it's also closer. Uh, it closely resembles the other verse on worship from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Addressing, in, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So this translation uh, highlights the role of music, of songs, in teaching as we gather corporately. And the words for psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are not to be taken as three clearly distinct categories of music. Um, the first two words, psalms and hymns, are typically the songs that are used to describe uh, songs and hymns, obviously, but also songs of praise, or songs with religious content. And spiritual songs can be translated as songs from the Spirit, uh, which essentially means they are written under the power of the Holy Spirit that teaches spiritual truth from the Bible. So we don't need to clearly distinguish them because you get an idea about what these songs are. These are the songs that can teach us truth. The songs that we can use to teach and admonish one another as we pursue the indwelling of God's word among us. And teaching and admonishing highlights two aspects of uh, instructions. So the positive and the negative. On one hand, by teaching, we receive knowledge of the biblical truth, and by admonishing, we heed warning on the danger of straying away from the truth, and both are necessary for our spiritual diet. So the songs we sing are something are meant to do that for us. And if you're new to our church, you aren't aware of that, it's okay. You know, to be honest, I didn't know about that for the longest time either. Uh, before I came to GFC, I was just before I came to GFC, I was introduced to Sovereign Grace Music Ministry. They had a sample CD album called "A Songs That Teach." I think that was the first time you know I heard about this concept of teaching through music. Um, it shouldn't be surprising though, you know. After all, what is the first songs we learned as a child? The alphabet song, right? I was born and raised in China, and even I learned that song when I was a kid. <laughs> because it's a song that teaches. And that's what it was in the text here. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and if I may add, through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So let me give you two examples from the songs we just sang today. Glorious Christ is a beautiful depiction on the attributes and the work of Christ. Or if you want to be fancy, you can call it Christology. And look at the first verse. The radiance of the Father before the dawn of time. You spoke and all creation came to be. The molecules and planets 
reveal your great design, and everyone was made so we could see, so we could see. And here are the five truths we can learn about Christ in this verse alone. One, the Son bears the radiance and the glory of the Father, from Hebrew chapter 1, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son existed before the creation of time, and that is from John 1, verse 1. All creation came to be through Jesus, and Jesus is the one that sustains all creation. That is Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Na even nature's revealed what we could see about even nature reveals the glory of God. That's from Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. And Christ was incarnated so that we could see God. That's from John 1, verse 18. One verse, five truths, just from a quick scan of the lyrics. And I'm sure there are more if you dig deeper. Another song we sang today was A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In verse 2, he admonishes us. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not for the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You know, it admonishes us then not to depend on our own strength, and not to rely on the power of the world, but that our battle, the spiritual battle, is not to use weapons that are from the flesh, but that we must depend on God. It challenges us, it challenges us not to strive by our own strength, but we need a right man on our side to fight for us. And that person is Jesus Christ. And this is why in GFC, worship is considered as a teaching ministry. And we simply don't select the most skilled musicians to lead on the worship team, but rather we look at their knowledge of the word and their characters, which must match and or surpass their skills. And it is also why two of our worship leaders are also our elders, and no pressure, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> However, guys and girls, do you notice the two words after teaching and admonishing? The two words that will frighten the highly individualistic Canadian culture the most. One another. It's not just from the band who does the teaching and admonishing to you and yourself, but it's the church, it's you who bears the responsibility to teach and admonish one another through singing songs to each other. Yes, the worship team is leading you to sing, the audio team is ensuring the sound from the speaker does not distract but enhance, the projection team is providing you with the lyrics, but in the end, the goal is not to entertain you with good music. My uncle-in-law is an audiophile, and he helped me to purchase a very good sound system at home, and we absolutely love listening to our favorite musicians while sitting on our couch in our living room. But that is not why we gather on a Sunday. The role of the church and the worship team is to produce excellent music, but not just for your own enjoyment to your head along to you. It is to lead you to behold the glory of God and to move you to teach and admonish one another as you see. And does that make you uncomfortable just by the thought of that? You are not only commanded to sing loudly and passionately, but now the scripture is also commanding you to do that to 
one another. And I know how un-Canadian this sounds like. You know, trust me, I'm a Chinese-Canadian, so I'm doubly reserved than your average Canadians. You know, we have this unspoken culture of keeping it to yourself, you know, stay in your lane, don't bother other people. But is that biblical? No. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, maybe when you're in Costco, sure, keep to yourself. <laughs> Stay in your lane. But on a Sunday morning, in our gatherings, only sing. Don't keep to yourself. Don't stay in your lane. Meet the other person in the eyes and teach and admonish one another in songs. There are many moments I remember Pastor Paul McDonald by when he was here with us. His passion in his teaching, and his love in his hospitality. But one thing, one image of him that's engraved in my mind was on a Sunday morning, how he, he would turn around, look at you in the eyes, <laughs> and belt out to you. Amen. You know, I get it. Most of us are not like that. It feels really weird to actually sing to one another. But why should it be? Who defines what is weird anyways? The Bible or the culture? You know, maybe standing stiffly, mumbling words to yourself and not engaging with one another when we gather is, is actually weird. You know, you see, it's easy to talk about being countercultural as believers in a big and grand concept. You know, yes, we should stand firm in our understanding of biblical sexuality, but what about other more subtle cultural traits that we inherited? You know, the, the ones that may not be outrightly sinful on its own, but if left unchallenged, we will be found unfaithful. And friends, you know, if you don't know what other people are going through on a Sunday morning, the words you sing could really exhort, encourage, comfort, and challenge others that you sing to without you even knowing. Maybe a tired parent who can never get a vacation from child-rearing could really need to hear that the Lord shelters you under His wings, so gently sustaining. Maybe some of you are struggling financially, you know, you fear losing your job, or you have already lost your job. You know, you could really be reminded by someone else that, have you not seen, all that is needful has been sent by His gracious ordaining. Maybe you have been praying about a broken relationship that just spirals down every time you try to fix it. Now, if only someone comes along with you and sings to you about God's goodness and mercy shall daily attend you and ponder anew what Almighty can do if with His love He befriended you. And maybe some of you have been tempted to disconstruct your faith you know, after all, what's the point of faith anyways? Your life seems really boring and you struggle with the same sin over and over again while your non-Christian friends are living their best life now. You know, maybe what you need is someone who could sympathize with you and sing with you. I too was lost. I too was in chain. The world had a hold of me. My heart was a stone. I was covered in shame when he came for me. But yet, 
we couldn't run, we couldn't run from His presence because Jesus, He loves me. chapter 2 verse 12 the author quotes Psalm chapter 22 verse 22 as the word of Jesus saying I will tell of your name to my brothers I is Jesus here in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise in verse 11 we see that Jesus is the one who sanctifies us who cleansed us from our sin and that's why he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. In fact, the author of Hebrews portrays Jesus as the ultimate worship leader who leads his brothers and sisters, which is you who place your faith in Jesus Christ, in singing songs of praise. He's not just singing from the pulpit or from the stage, but he's, the, he's in the midst of you, you know, where Jessica and Megan are probably sitting right now. And you better get ready for some very intense eye contact <laughs> on that day. And the overwhelming infusion of joy that comes with that. I also want to take this opportunity to address some of us you know, who have the habit of arriving church late or choose to stay home on Sunday because it's convenient. I understand Omicron is surging, so and a lot of you are at risk, so I want to be sensitive here. But the question remains the same, though. How can we be faithful to the one another commandment if we are tardy when we gather or when we neglect meeting altogether? Yes, sermon's important, and you don't want to miss that, but so is singing to God with one another. You know, the months when we had to pre-record service during the week and you know, stream it on Sunday, was honestly the most uncomfortable and weird season and I never want to go back to you. <laughs> Thank you. And not just because it's awkward and cringy to hear and see yourself on TV, but just, you know, lunging your home clothes on a couch, watching the t church service, it's just, it's just weird and bizarre. You know, sometimes to motivate myself to be more engaged, I would try to stand up and sing, but that only made me miss more of you guys, you know, to be able to sing worship with you in person. And another helpful insight from this passage is all of this is to be done in wisdom. And the sons are chosen by the elders and worship leaders to teach and admonish in a way that's appropriate to the context of our church. And what this means is that our fidelity to the biblical truth is not bound by a certain time period to when a song was written, or a music style that's more gaudy than another, or a spontaneous personal choice for the sake of authenticity. The songs are chosen carefully, prayerfully, and thoughtfully according to the biblical standards that we found in the Bible. 
And those who attended GFC Essentials may remember this. We talked about it in our meeting today. We choose songs um, based on what is beautiful musically, what is truthful lyrically, and what is helpful congregationally. So in wisdom, not every song we sing must be written by dead hymnal writers during the Reformation era in an English that not anyone can hardly understand, even if the content is theologically rich. You know, we love both old hymns, but we also will sing new, uh, modern Christian songs or worship songs if lyrically and musically And it doesn't mean every song we sing must be a theological essay with six verses and 500 words. You know, sometimes a simpler and shorter song like Jesus, but a friend for Savior is just what we need to hear. It also doesn't mean we must have a certain musical instrument, or it must not have a certain musical instrument. You know, churches have been to war over things like that, but I'm not convinced by it. You know, unless you pull out the carps, the trumpets, and the horns, we're never going to replicate how the Old Testament Israelites worshipped. And what are we commanded to? Leaders must exercise wisdom in choosing, arranging, and leading the songs we sing on Sunday because they're meant to teach and admonish by one another, to one another, in a context of Grace Fellowship Church, a multi-ethnic church in the city of Toronto, So far, we have emphasized so much on the pursuit of our priority in worship through singing to one another. Maybe you want to push back on that. You know, James, what if I don't want to sing to other people because I don't want to look as if I'm performing? Isn't my heart enough? You're not wrong in that. You know, we do not sing to each other as a performance. But you are wrong in thinking it has to be one way or the other. And if you sing to each other as you pursue the dwelling of God's word in one another, but you also sing to God with a heart posture of thanksgiving. And that is our third point today. The posture of our worship is a heart of thankfulness to God. So the last part of our text reads this. We thankfulness in your hearts to God. And again, I prefer the CSB translations here that reads, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. And singing, singing is a natural expression of thankfulness and gratitude to God, or to any circumstances that excites us. At our home, we love musicals. You know, whether it's old ones like Singing in the Rain, or the more recent one like Hamilton, when you come to Prigo Duke. You know, a common experience when we watch movies like those is that we would unconsciously be tucked into the emotion of the, of the movie as the characters sing and dance. You know, often I would find myself with a very big, dumb grin on my face without even knowing when I watched those movies. You know, there is something special, or there is a magical, magical in music that can just hit a spot in you stir up affection in a way a speech or writing cannot do as easily. You know, we can, and what can give us more joy than the fact that God has forgiven us from all our sins and that He has released us from our debts, which is death. 
Imagine catching a terminal disease and every doctor is telling you that you only have a few weeks to live. But then out of nowhere, you are healed. What will, what will you do after receiving the news? You'll probably be shocked and disbelieved initially. Is this a practical joke? That would be too cruel. But when a doctor is looking to you, assuring you confidently that you are indeed healed and you are given a second life, what will you do? Relief, joy, and celebration. And that is why we sing. We sing to each other to pursue the indwelling of God's word. We sing to each other because God's word produces thankfulness in our hearts. We sing because we have personally experienced the truth of God's words in our lives. That joy moves from the depths of our heart to God, who is seated on the throne. Through the songs we sing. So our singing is both horizontal to each other, as well as vertical to God. And why does God tell his people to sing? You know, can we just read the scripture, pray, and listen to a sermon? But that's precisely what music can do that a prose, well, which is speech or writings, cannot do as easily. That is, stir up our affections and thankfulness to Him. Jonathan Edwards wrote this in his book, Religious Affection. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose. And to do it with music, and, but not only that such is our nature and frame that these things, you know, music, have a tendency to move our affections. You may ask, you know, isn't this emotionalism? You know, isn't emotionalism bad? Well, no. Emotionalism is only bad if the emotion it aims to stir up is, sorry, emotionalism is not bad when it aims to stir up emotions that are consistent to the truth from the Bible. God created us with mind and souls. We possess both intellects as well as emotions. Devoid yourself from feelings is robbing yourself from what it means to be human. You know, if you're married or if you want to pursue a marital relationship with someone, is it emotionalism to create a romantic atmosphere on a date? Is it manipulative to dim the light, light up a few candles with soft music in the background? It's sinful to do that with someone who's not your spouse or someone you have no interest to pursue. But it would be dumb and wrong if you don't put in any effort to express your love to the person by avoiding emotions. And likewise, Music and songs are designed to stir up our affections, and it is not wrong to have your emotion and affections stirred up by them, if it is consistent to the biblical truth in the song. In fact, we must consider the lyrical truth within the song and the musicalities of the song, so that they will together they will work to move our hearts effectively. And here's an exhortation from Charles Spurgeon to pastors who oversee the music ministry. But I think it's helpful for all of us to hear. It's a long quote, so I'll try to pause and explain it to you. Your business in a congregation is to give spiritual praise a suitable embodiment 
in harmonious notes. That means you must choose music that suits the lyrics. They must work together. Take care that you do not depress what you should labor to express. Select the tune in accordance with the spirit of the song or hymn and make your style of singing suitable to the words before you. You know, flippantly to lead all tunes to the same time, same tone, emphasis is an abomination. <laughs> to take tunes at random is little less than criminal. You mock God and injure the devotion of His people if you carelessly offer to the Lord that which has cost you no thoughts, no care, no exercise of judgment. You can help the pious heart to wing its way to heaven upon a well-selected harmony, and on the other hand, vex, that means annoy, torture, the godly ear by inappropriate or unmelodious airs, adapted rather to distract and dishearten than to encourage intelligent praise. Classics version. So you see, it would be counterproductive if we sing a song of praise like a dirge. Imagine singing glorious Christ without any passion or energy as if Christ was not raised. Likewise, a song of petition and assurance should not be sung without any weight in its tune. Imagine a mighty fortress is our God in a whimsical and airy tune. So if the music and the lyrics do not match or build one another, then that is on the worship leaders. But if you resist the words when you sing, as if it's not true, and you refuse to be moved by the songs and the lyrics of these songs, then we will be disobedient to the scripture that calls us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Here's a passage from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14 to 17, on how we should sing and why we should sing. Sing for joy, daughter of Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your hearts, daughter of Jerusalem. Sing for joy, shout loudly, be glad and celebrate with all your hearts. Does this sound familiar to what we have just heard? The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. And again, that's the reason for our joy and celebration. The Lord has redeemed them from their punishment, and He protected them from their enemy. The King of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, is among them. Just as Jesus Christ is with us, you no longer need to fear. And now is the best part. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you. A warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. And he will delight in you with singing. I want to read this again. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. And he will delight in you 
with singing. How can you resist in your heart to sing with joy when our God rejoices over you with gladness? And what does He do in His delights? He delights in you with singing. So if God was singing in the midst of you with joy and loud shouts, how then shall we sing? Friend, our God is with us, and He is not ashamed to rejoice over us with gladness. And He delights in us with singing. Not because we have been such faithful people, and we are so lovely, but it's because we have put on the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, in all His glory and beauty. So then how would you respond in your heart as you sing? The indwelling of the Word of Christ in us is both a priority as well as a privilege we have in Christ Jesus. And let us not take that for granted. Let us pursue His presence in our church by teaching and admonishing one another in songs. Let our heart's posture be one of exuberant joy and thankfulness as we sing. And let us now pray to make that a reality in our lives, and then we will sing.